Welcome to Kimecast, where we break through and cut the BS in sports medicine, rehabilitation, and sports performance, and talk about how things really work. Welcome to Kimecast, Tony Mikla, Russ Dunning, Evan Hauger, Aaron Crouch. Let's do this, fellas. So let's take on some conversation here about using kettlebells. We've we've really used kettlebells extensively in the last five years, I'd say. It's become a a big aspect of what we practice, and there's a lot of good, uh, a lot of good reason for that. So we wanted to kind of dive into that, as to some of the concepts of the bell and why we use the bell, and really want to help maybe remove some of the fear that might be out there um, from from using the bell because we really found this to be a tremendously valuable tool. And we'll talk about that from a shoulder and upper extremity standpoint, a, a trunk standpoint, as well as the lower extremity standpoint. You're using these different elements, and I think get a lot of benefit from it. So, but first, Evan, we got a beer of the night. Beer of the night. This one is a. This is from New Glory, which is also in Sacramento, um, another local brewery. This one's called the Citra Dream. This is an IPA. Fun fact: the decoration on the can likens that to Aaron's bedroom. So, <laughs> is that can <laughs> <laughs> how, how often are you in his bedroom? Uh, it's, a good, it's a good question. Just heard about it, Russ. It's <laughs> or, uh, <laughs> it's, it's stimulatory. Clearly, <laughs> <laughs> with those balloons, it would be. Yeah, that's what I thought. Looks light though. Yeah, good deal. Yeah. Also, is... part of my preference. <laughs> I don't know. Usually, the Citra doesn't usually mean it's a. Yeah, see, it's the IPA. There's nothing light yeah. about that. Yeah, it's it's, it's just hidden light. That's it's what it is. Light. Hidden light. <laughs> Subtleties. Yeah, there's there's what do we got here? There's a percentage. I'm sure it's like seven and a half. Probably they all have. There's it. no Citra that's like. Six. They don't list it. I feel like oh seven. Oh, they seven. don't list it. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's bad news bears. Yeah. The intangibles. Kettlebells. All right. So from a bell standpoint, um, so we, we're, we're a, a strong believer throughout our organization at Kime that uh, using the bell is a great tool. We've really identified well with the strong first methodology and, and I think every clinician on the team is, uh, is SFG certified, at least level one, if not level two. Or uh, training then, for it. Or, or in the process for it. And it's not to say that the SFG is the only way. I think we're, we're also supportive of the RKC process. So, so either one is fine. Because uh, at the end of the day, it's about uh, your understanding of how the bell works and how you can use it to your advantage in, in, the, training, in the training environment. So whether that be from rehab uh, to performance, but this is probably the place we use it the most in that space in between. Where someone's gone through some rehab and now it's time to kind of build them up and start to load the process, load the system, load the pattern. And, and maybe someone who's uh, about ready to kind of start on some strength training, maybe the barbells, they haven't quite, what we would say, earned the barbell yet, or maybe earned the Olympic lift yet. So how can we go through uh, some bell work to help get them there? So, Yeah, I think years ago, it was, uh, I'm a firm believer in, for any listener, especially more of a, of a younger listener, you find your role model and you learn what they learn. You read the books they read. And I remember looking through Greg Cook's book, uh, bookshelf online and i remember seeing a book by pavel satsaline and i liked reading what other people were reading and so i read that book and i thought pavel might be of the more interesting reads in the strength world that i've ever read and then i looked a little bit deeper and i found out that that great cook was kettlebell certified and then i found out oddly enough that that pavel was was kind of the spearhead uh, behind that and and looking at this uh, this kettlebell, this single tool, it was really kind of interesting on how you can develop a whole certification behind just like a singular tool. And, and that kind of like, just, I kind of jumped all in because I really loved, uh, you know, going back to 
one of our other episodes on SFMA. I love the thinking, the algorithmic thinking of the SFMA. And I thought if the minds behind the SFMA also think that the the, the minds behind the kettlebell is, is worth a dive, then I'm going to jump all in. And uh, and it didn't disappoint. I, I personally love the kettlebell. Um, I've been through a variety of different, you know, strength training methods, performance training methods, and um, the kettlebell has been a unique experience, uh, more out of intrigue than anything else. And the way that I felt that it influenced my body and, and how I progressed my own strength pattern, my stability and, and, um, and movement is it, it somewhat humbled me a little bit right out of the gate. And I think the SFG process we talk about with a lot of our clinicians is to have them experience the the process less of the certification but more like let the let the kettlebell teach you some things about skill acquisition and um moving your body in such a way that you have to kind of stabilize this implement that can be so manipulative around your body either in one hand or both hands or above your head bottoms up to offer a, a reactive perturbation like there's a lot of possibilities with the kettlebell which i think fits like tony said in our rehab bridge between the pain segment to the performance segment and, and there's a place in performance but i you know i think it really fits nicely into what we want to achieve with clients on reloading their body i think the stability piece that you mentioned is kind of really the key that's that's the missing piece in many other forms of strength training the missing piece in in most forms of rehab and we've talked about this on previous episodes as stability being something that we focus on heavily with with holds we've talked about these duration holds we have a whole episode where we talked for multiple minutes on this this duration hold idea and we've talked about getting towards this version of 60 seconds of holding and many physiological benefits and many other benefits but i think the kettlebell lends itself nicely to those holds and to those reactive holds and that reactive stability that we really have a hard time creating i think in other ways so i think it forces a couple of things to turn on that we have a hard time turning on with with other implements and we, we had another episode, again, where we talked about internal versus external cues, or that was one of our what the fuck, right? Internal or external cues. Mm -hmm. The kettlebell is a perfect external cue because if you load it in certain ways, so if we rack it on one side or if we rack it in two ways, you mentioned, like when we do a squat, that forces your stomach to turn on. The hardest thing that you can get somebody to do when they go through a squat pattern is make their stomach turn on. And so you see this, this lumbar spine folding at the bottom with an with a axial yeah. load on top. That's a recipe for a disaster, right? You put a kettlebell in front, and that forces stability in the midsection. We flip the kettlebell upside down or we put it over our head, that forces stability in the rotator cuff and the shoulder girdle in ways we can't really create with tubing or two pound weights or yep. um, dumbbells, I think, the, I think the piggyback onto that is that it's self-limiting too. One of the yeah. best things about the kettlebell is it's completely self-limiting. You have to hold it in one hand or two hands and if you can't pick it up from the ground or you can't hold it in a racked position and squat with it without it beating you to the floor, then you know your limitations. There's no cheating around it. You can't lay on a bench and put safety bars around you. You can't cheat with some r random movement pattern by putting something on your back. Um, you can't compensate with your movement pattern in any way because it really exposes vulnerabilities about how you move as an individual. And then those are the things you identify as the clinician or the rehab specialist to, um, to attack for that, that person you're working with. And so in that respect, it's very much three-dimensional as opposed to yes. some other things that end up being a little bit more one or two mm -hmm. planes of movement. I mean, I think there's some just weird fear, and I'm not sure where the fear is rooted, but, you know, really, we're just talking about a, a 35 to 55-pound object that you get to do some cool stuff with. You know, barbells, you'll regularly load a barbell 
you just put one of the basic plates on, it's, it's, it quickly jumps to 135 pounds on a barbell that people do, you know, the good old fashioned bench press. And so it's kind of a weird fear with, uh, with you know, like a 45 or 55 pound bell, even a 25 pound bell. And I think part of the fear is because people really don't know what to do with it. It's not really a bodybuilding thing. It, it is more of a functional thing. You know, it's not something you, you'll ever get a bicep pump with with a with a kettlebell so i think maybe maybe the fear is that you actually have to learn you probably need to read a book you probably need to go to a class you probably need to have someone watch your patterning for you to actually use it effectively you know you know god forbid get involved in education but you're gonna have to follow someone that's really freaking smart Pablo Sotsaline. Well, but you know you yeah. gotta do that right well, you do need you need a coach here i think i think yeah. it's because you are it's against moving pattern true. issues so you need a coach and but I think what we've, what we've used it and, and found the biggest value, as you guys have all said, is, is really in the fact that it forces you to control it from the from the beginning to the end. You know, you can't start it in a squat rack, as you mentioned. You got to pick it up from the ground. You got to control it. And so we use it in many different ways to establish control in different body parts. You know, we look at we look at doing that through the shoulder and the shoulder girdle. We look at doing it through the trunk, and then also uh, even down to the lower extremities. We look at coming up from maybe like a get up position from a from a split stance, uh, from a split lunge position up to to a tall uh, standing position. So I think some of our some of our favorite shoulder progressions, you know, can be simple. Where again, we talk about isometric holds and kind of building that endurance in those holds for sixty seconds, and that could be in the form of a carry. You know, it could be it could be suitcase carry, it could be rack carry, it could be overhead carry, and then of course you bring up the bottoms up component, which which Evan was mentioning. You know, we talk we use PNF a lot early on in our process for manual therapy and manual resistance and building strength in different planes. And it's a bit of reactive strength, and I think when you go bottoms up with the kettlebell, you get you get that same response, and you can take that. To the shoulder, then you can really bring that to the trunk. I remember we had we had a sprinter early on when we we were started working together again, and uh, we started really bringing the kettlebell into the mix. And you know, she uh, she was insanely insanely fast ACL reconstructions coming off her ACL. Uh, she's six months out or so. We were squatting and such. She had started having a little bit of back stuff as we were kind of progressing her back to back to sport and getting back in the mix. Her having some little back pain and stuff. So I was working with Russ and like, what do you think we do here? And he said, let's do a uh, single arm bottom of a kettlebell squat and uh this is a strong athlete like one of the fastest uh, people in her sport um in her in her in the in the division and you know division one ncaa she's very very fast and uh after like five reps she laid down on the ground she's like oh my god like my abs are just on fire and it's like she, i'd never felt like this before and it was is an interesting stimulus and we didn't say a word about you know yeah, transverse abdominis, or you know, tighten yeah. your abs, or any internal cues, or any of that stuff. Yeah. And I think to the point of fear, it's not your three sets of ten exercises. Yeah. Like this elite athlete yeah. was fatigued after five, and it's because of the endurance that's required. You're holding the entire time. You really don't get to shut it off. To your point, there, there's no rack to hang on to it. So it's not the basic three sets of ten that everybody's familiar with. It's the everything. Everything starts to change here, even how you program it. That's what that's what makes it fun. It's hard yeah. to hold on. Yes. And it's hard to hold on and people, you know, whether whether it's your, you know, Dan John will say it's either your guns, your buns, your lungs. But, you know, if it is your guns, you're thinking like, man, I got to really hold this thing tight, whether it's a single arm swing or it's a get up or it's a squat. It, it wants to fall out of you, it wants to dump out. You, you want to let it go. You got to tighten it up and bring it in. And, and that's the that's the part that external cue turns everything on that should be turned on. And once it's turned on, now move, now squat, lunge, now hinge, have some fun with it because you're actually tightening your body, you're getting that proximal stability, and it starts with your grip. And how much more function is that? You know, we, we, we move by gripping things. People hurt themselves moving concrete 
babies, carriages, the wooden ladders, you know, they, they grip something and they move it, you know, and, and when it comes to the kettlebell, I think this like term of like functional training, you know, functional, what the hell is functional? Grip something yeah. and move. That's function. It's skill acquisition. I always felt that it was that mostly than anything else. I don't know. I don't know why it felt like that to me, but it was skill acquisition at the end of the day. Yeah. Like it really made you hone in on the things that make up the components of managing the kettlebell really, really well. And it gives you a purpose. It gives you questions to ask if you're not doing it well. And many components to consider outside of just the, the lift. You're not just getting it done anymore. You're owning it. You're, you're doing it with relative perfection, if you can. And I think that as a clinician, you have to experience that yourself. Absolutely. I mean, I don't know if we've covered this in another podcast or not, but um, I absolutely believe that you have to be able to do everything you ask your clients to do. And the only way, the, the reason for that is because you have to be able to have some point of reference on what you're cueing or what, you're, what you expect them to look like, what they should feel. You should be able to speak to that. And so when you go through like these skill acquisition, um, I don't know, experiences with the kettlebell, which you could do with a barbell for sure, with Olympic lifting and whatnot, it's a sport, but... Um, I really felt that my transition from the barbell to a kettlebell really honed that for me. Well, let me ask you a question. How long did it take you to train for that SFG? Series? It took me It took me eight months. I was right. weak as shit over my head. I'm not going to lie to you. Baseball player, taboo to go over your head. I was like right arm, right-handed. I could barely push a 20-kilo belt, just 44 pounds. Weak as, weak as all could be, right? Left arm was like barely pushing the 16. I could squat whatever you want me to, but then my upper body is like this little noodle system. Perfect. It's insane. How long, how long did it take you? I was a strong eight months. It was uh, maybe nine months. Yeah, it was four to five training days a week. So because he didn't move well. Well, the exact opposite. Tony, let's ask Tony here. Tony, how long did it take you? I'm still working on it. Still working on it. We're in continuation. That's a right. question. Yeah, right. question. But, but so my point here is that, that I think the biggest thing I took away from that and that I really, the biggest piece that I want our clinicians to take away from that when they do this is the time it takes for this skill acquisition, but also this physiological adaptation. Yeah. You, know, you see somebody for a six-week time period, you really can't expect that much to happen in that time period, right? Where, well, where neurological changes are happening in that time period. What I what I want people to see is that it actually takes eight months for for this shit to change. For you to press fifty three pounds over your head, going from you know thirty five to fifty three. Seventy two now. Seventy two now is great, but I'm sticking with your eight months. Thank but you. Appreciate that, that. That eight months <laughs> to that twenty pound change took you eight months. Well, right? yes. Speaking of adaptation, yeah, I, I had a <laughs> barely made it. You know, I had a doctor friend that told me I, I had an elite UFC fighter. He was a, a champ of you know two times over. And the best in the world at one time, the absolute best in the world. And he fractured his back and I was getting him back to kettlebell swings. And the, the, the doctor, you know, and he had a great place in his heart. His heart was Rush, You got to be really careful with kettlebell swings. He fractured his spine. And I kind of calmly said, I know he's going to get back to beating the shit out of people. Just let that sink in. He fractured his back. What are we going to do in training to prepare him to train hard to beat another man at a sport that's, I'm not going to say to the death, that sounds weird, but it's going to be till that other guy submits. And so, you know, when we think about a, a kettlebell swing, it's fortifying the body for war. So I don't do kettlebell swings with, you know, all of my people, but if they're going to fortify their body for war, if it's a lacrosse athlete, a football athlete, a soccer athlete, a baseball athlete, we're going to fortify for war. They're going to try and crush that ball when it comes over the plate. If they're going to crush it, they should be able to crush a 35 or 45, 55 pound bell with a good swing. 
and what I what I love about that we haven't really talked about this ballistic nature yet. What I love about that is sports is being able to turn it on and turn it off again really really quickly. And the kettlebell swing is all about that. There's this period of kind of floating and letting the bell kind of take you into position, and there's a period of you kind of like firing everything and turning it on fast. And that's exactly what a cut is in sports, or a baseball swing is in sports, or a strike is in in fighting. It's it's that on off super super fast. That's what's supported in the research with the swing is the postural reaction. 100% is the timing and the rhythm of the swing itself that prepares you for that instantaneous reaction to your environment. 100%. Yeah. So as we look at the swing, I think we've been talking about this idea of kettlebell swinging and, you know, we to your point as far as like generating power production and fortifying the body is good. I think what's kind of cool here too is we can use it as a, as a cardiovascular tool. And I think that's, there's a few things out there that, that we love from a cardiovascular development standpoint that we feel are safe. And, and the sled is probably our number one tool that we love from a cardiovascular development as far as strength, cardiovascular support. And you really, it's really tough to hurt yourself pushing a sled on turf. <laughs> you know, I mean, if, if you got problems there, we got some serious Sorry. issues, you know. So we feel really good about that. Um, anything else starts to come a little dicey, whether you run or you row or you, you know, whatever it is, cross country, you know, rowing concept to a machine, whatever it might be. Uh, but the kettlebell swing, again, is one in that category. If you have the skill set to swing, you know, I can't speak much to it, but I see you guys doing it all the time. It looks amazing. Yeah, so I think, if, I think there's a, yeah, thousands. I think if, this is an interesting topic because I get it from clients that, that are watching gym members across from our facility doing swings and they're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they're doing that. Yeah, it looks scary. That, yeah. that, I mean, how could their back not just completely blow up right now? And I... I I think that has to come with a certain perspective. And so I immediately educate them immediately because I want to, I want to completely eliminate the misnomer out there that swings are dangerous. They're nothing more than a hip hinge with a little bit of speed. It's the way you pick up a bag of dog food off the ground. So if you can't hip hinge at a baseline, so if you're a coach or you're a rehab clinician that wants to implement kettlebell swings to some regard in your, in your practice, you should, if you teach someone the hip hinge, the deadlift, the RDL, enough times and they get strong with it they no longer need coaching with it if the skills acquired you'll teach the swing in 10 minutes and you won't have to say a thing other than it's just a rhythm and timing thing explore it and then they're clean if you try to push the swing onto someone that doesn't have a foundational hip hinge they will fail and they will hurt 100 it's a sharp sword it has an amazing benefit but if you don't if you don't um prepare the person for the pattern that they're about to use with speed and impact ballistics, they're going to fail. That's an excellent point. There's a right time for every exercise, yes. right? And it all fits into the continuum we've talked about before. That, And the kettlebell is probably a unique tool in that it can kind of fit anywhere on the continuum. We've talked about it being very early on from a stability perspective. And you're now talking about it being like a reintegration, like speed of tissue, power development towards the end of the continuum, right? So Swiss Army knife. Exactly. It's something that can be used for many, many different tools. Strength development in the middle. There's, there's, there's a lot that it can do. It's very versatile in that. And can we agree that the hip hinge is the foundation of most athletic movements? Most athletic yes. movements, you can find a hip hinge pattern in there somewhere. Yes. So if you're going to practice something and be get it and be better at something as an athlete, the hip hinge with speed and ballistics is where you should go. And this might segue later into another question, but um, if you can practice something a little less weight and more volume for skill acquisition, that would probably be your best option outside of like one or two reps at a time and that speaks to the fear part whenever people say oh i don't know about that i've had my friend really hurt their back and then we hear the story yeah. doing what yeah. they were swinging a bell how much weight 
well, they had been, they studied by someone, they had a few lessons, and then in three months they were doing really good and they climbed with weight and then they hurt themselves. And, and that's really the secret. It, it's really just, it, it, usually it's an excessive amount of weight, an excessive amount of volume with, with probably improper form. And then you get an injury. You could do anything in the world with that sequence and wind up in an injury. You know, you could probably do jump rope with an inappropriate volume, intensity, and poor form and find an injury. So you'll find an injury with anything regarding performance uh, if you have improper loading and improper technique. And, and so there, there's really not much fear is starting to learn whether or not it's for you and you have a reason to fortify your body in that way, which we all should, you know, that, that's, that's on you. And to that fear point, it's, you know, somebody looking at that across the gym, somebody that's never been exposed to anything like that. I, mean, that, that, I could see that being a scary movement there because they're not physically prepared for that. And to your point, you have to physically prepare them, but you should have taught them the hip hinge in many different forms, the deadlift, the probably on one leg and two, and mm -hmm. you should, you'd be progressing them to this point. Yeah, it's scary. You walk in day one, you've never touched a weight in your life, and you go swing kettlebell. That doesn't make any sense. That's not what we're advocating. It's, yeah. The yeah. idea is there's got to be this simple, this this progression to get you to that point, and that falls over here on the far end of the continuum. Yeah. If we haven't done all these things to that point, then it's a useless drill. But every drill is useless if we haven't prepared somebody. And then, I right. think that's why we use the get-up so much, because the get-up is slower. It has that perturbation balance component. We can teach it in many steps. You can do kind of the first step and the right. second step and really have a, have a good time with slowly developing. Yeah. There's a lot of folks, you know, over the age of 70, I'll teach the first three steps of the getup and that's kind of it. You're learning that and they do really well with it, whether it's for a shoulder or a back stability drill. Mm -hmm. I, I think one thing I'll say is that as a clinician, working with the bell, we found it to be a tremendous tool and, and we use it regularly. But the one thing, the one caveat you have to have is you do have to have a patient be engaged in the process. Mm -hmm. They've got to kind of, want to use it or, or accept the challenge of using it if you're just throwing it at them which would be true with any weight i think is that hey i want you to do this because i want you to do it if they're not engaged and they get a little careless then things can get a little sloppy so there definitely has to be an engagement there but it's a phenomenal control so i i think not to tell evan's story for him but i think that it really changed your shoulder function from from doing a, a traditional rehab, again, this is where it kind of fits into this bridge the gap between rehab performance. wasn't wasn't the best thrower on your on your team for a while yeah, there. Awful. This is awful. <laughs> liability is this, 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 was a, this was in a previous podcast, but yes, there was at one point in my life. That's what I'd say it twice. Well. Yeah. <laughs> let's let's get, get back to the the room thing. Really. Yeah, and then shoulder <laughs> fell apart. Multiple multiple dislocations. Shoulder fell apart, and to a point in rec league, you know, at, what was that intramural softball at school? Probably? There were big softballs. I will say what? There were mountain softballs. That's not why. I, I think terrible shoulder at that point. No, terrible shoulder at that point. Right, I've been been through hell. Like terrible shoulder, didn't function the way it properly should. And yeah, training with kettlebells and the stability components of things. But really, the end stage thing, which again is not for everybody, but getting to the snatch and this this you know, 53 pound kettlebell flying over your head and you having to stabilize it at the top. Again, I think you made this point earlier in, in this episode that as, as baseball players, you're always taught, like, don't do anything overhead. When I was a kid, you, if you pressed anything overhead, it was the end of the world. Oddly similar to that position. Right. Yeah, but it was <laughs> weird. It was always, yeah. always told no, right? Now yeah. I'm flinging this heavy thing over. I'm like, all right, last ditch ever. Let's see what happens, right? And yeah, I mean, my, yeah, everything changed. I think. Yeah. I can, I can throw it. They're cheese now. Frozen ropes across the infield. Something like that. Yeah. Back to the short step position. <laughs> Even though it's softball, it's a little bigger ball than you'd like to be playing, but either way. It's heavier. See, that's, just, that's just talking yeah. about. It's arms. heavier. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> that's the perspective. It takes him into more layback so he has more width. Oh, I see. 
but, but I think this does kind of go to you may maybe ask like a skilled a skilled carpenter. What's your favorite tool in your shop? And, and to probably a carpenter, it's pretty darn silly. Why? Why is that so silly, Mister Carpenter? Well, because you need the right tool for the job. If you're getting speed perturbation, there's probably nothing better than a single arm swing. If you're able to fortify someone in that manner, if you're looking for, uh, you know, some some activation of the core in a deep squat pattern using a bottom up asymmetrical unilateral loaded. Uh, bottom-up kettlebell squat, not much better. So we need to apply the right tool. And this is where I love med balls. I use a, a trap bar a lot. I use a pull-up bar. We might use a TRX rope. It, it is knowing your tools. And, and I do think that if you have skill with the tools that you employ, you're going to be the best clinician out there. You shouldn't be afraid of the kettlebell. And to that mm. point, I think I could take each of you, put you guys in a room with, or anywhere, put you out in the world somewhere with a person and no implement, and you could figure out a way to get the forces and the demands required, right? So mm -hmm. to your point, it's not about the tool. Yeah. It's more about why are we doing it and how can we create the, the demands that we want? Yeah. One thing we can count on is Russ to bring in a really interesting analogy. <laughs> yes. There's <laughs> <laughs> a kangaroo on another episode. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Hey, resonant frequency. That's a true fact right there. Yeah, it's just an expertise. It's a true fact. Yeah. That is a true <laughs> fact, guys. <laughs> well, you know, I, well, I talk. I've heard of double negatives. Fake news. Well, I tell my fighter, hey, it might, I tell my fighters, if, if you're not strong in your grip, you're not strong. Doesn't matter how much you can leg press. Doesn't matter how much you can neck bend. If you can't grab it with your hand, you're not strong. There's no this, this part of my body is strong. This part of my body is strong. Can you grip something? That is the essence of grip. It's so much the essence of grip that there's multiple studies on the longevity of people based on your grip health. I think this, yeah, I'm going to harness yeah, this, this energy. Nicely in another I'm going to ask the yes. question of what the fuck are we doing with AMRAP Olympic lifts? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Olympic lifts done until fatigue and fatigue over. Like why? Olympic lifting is a skill. It's a sport, yet let's let's do it until we're completely tired and the skill's with gone the out the window. Lifter. With a novice lifter that went to the, like a learning course with a stick for one day. <laughs> Maybe and, then, and then we loaded the bar. Let's not forget the bar weighs 45 pounds. That's right. maybe a, a decent fraction of their body weight. And like, you need at least 10 on there because it needs to be off the floor. Right? So, okay. So that, that's with novice lifters. Right, let's just, we can just talk about Olympic lifts at its most basic point for a second. What's the point of Olympic lifts? Establish most power. Yeah. Establish power, power right? You. So yes, we can establish power. Two feet positions. There's some split stance positions with the with the jerks and some of those. And things. to be more specific, in a vertical manner. In a very vertical manner, right? Okay. So uh, if you look at research on this, they they do develop power, but there's other things that can develop power that probably apply more to sport, and they've actually shown to be more effective than that. And the two things are kettlebell swings is one so that fits nicely into this episode, and number two is jumping trap bar deadlifts. Those two things have been shown to produce more yeah. power, with more functional translation power to sport than... than with less skill requirement with less and skill less risk. Right. Now, vertical power, yes, but you should... It, it, it starts as a hinge, which most people don't do well, so they bounce it off their thighs and go straight vertical from it. You should be able to hip hinge with power and redirect the bar vertically, which is an intense skill. Right. Which is the problem. You're asking like a very skillful movement from someone that doesn't do it well and to do it as many times as you fucking can. And if you're not and if you're not a perfect mover and you don't have perfect skill, yeah, then you're gonna you're gonna cheat. Yeah. If you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. So you're gonna cheat. Of course you're gonna cheat. Right. And, and and there's minimal room for error because the bar is about as rigid as it gets. That's exactly right. And in my mind it becomes a risk reward 
question. Right? I've talked it's, to strength coaches at, 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 at collegiate institutions and they've completely eliminated the racking situation. They, they do the pull. Right. Awesome. Let's yeah. move to the kettlebell and either grab one or two of them and you have the exact same thing, but with a little more volume and probably a little bit better form right. with the same purpose. I think what's cool if, if you, you're absolutely right, like using, using the barbell is such a fixed device. Like if you look at, if you look at human movement, look at patterning, look at sport, how often are you a two hands overhead? Whether you're looking at the jerk or if you look at the snatch, that's a specific movement in that sport. But in normal sport and other activity in the world, that's not a position of strength necessarily where you're going to be moving something or moving an object. Typically, we're going to be one hand overhead pressing something. There's things you're going to reach in your cabinet for something heavy. You're going to put one hand down, one hand up, and then reach because that's you got to get out. You got to open that range up. If you're throwing a baseball, throwing a javelin, spiking a volleyball, you're doing one hand up, one hand down, and this is where the kettlebell, I think, is a, a nice tool from a yeah. snatching standpoint, where it gives you some freedom to get it overhead, let your thoracic spine move and go. If you've got both arms overhead at the same time, whether you're pressing, snatching, jerking, mm -hmm. you better have an amazing thoracic extension mobility and amazing mobility to that shoulder girdle. Yeah, right. it's the it's the risk reward question. Like yeah. I said, right. it's, it's you you take this like extremely skillful movement. So you got an athlete. Your goal is force production. An Olympic lift is an option. Or maybe a jumping trap bar is an option. Kettlebell swing is an option. There's many other options out there. Do you take this thing that is a skill and a sport in and of itself and challenging and comes with its own risks? Or do you take one of these other things that can produce as much, if not more power, that's less skillful and easier to coach and teach and just going to accomplish yeah. the task? It's uh, all, yeah. yeah. I, I think, oddly enough, I find like the best athletes, usually they can't hit that overhead squat. It just, it's too, it's, it requires too much focus and, and, uh, focus on mobility and the best athletes have some other gifts that whether it's speed or power or conditioning and, and we can't expect them to kind of nail these positions and so i think the people who you know are good at the lifts they really value value the sport of olympic lifting they don't use it as a supplement it is the big show and so you know using a jerk uh, for some supplemental work for athleticism is is quite silly you know maybe we can kind of argue the hang clean but then are you just cleaning a kettlebell or double yeah. kettlebells any right. day? Yeah. So well, it's think, the pattern. Yeah. We're, not, we're not dispelling the pattern at all. You're not dispelling the, the, the snatch is good if you can do it well. The jerk, the push press, the clean, the power clean. All those things are, are done really, they do great things for you. But they don't have to be with the barbell. Right. And if you struggle with the barbell, stop thinking like you need to like stack boxes next to it and do partial movement patterns or... You use a training bar, eliminate eliminate the fixed object and use some other version of it. Still practice the pattern, but you recognize there's other options out there. Yeah, for sure. And I think to your first point about using Olympic lifts is like an AMRAP situation where we're doing this for like hmm. reps, right? I mean, the, the goal of Olympic lifting is power production, which, which really is not debatable. Like the, the reason why it's so popular, I think in sports, outside of its own sport, about sports such as football or track and field and throwing and such is there's correlations. So like if you clean more and if you snatch more, you throw further and you hit people harder and you run faster. And we, we see that. Now we could draw those correlations with many, many other drills. And I think that's really important to take away from. You don't have to snatch more to jump higher, right? They Are they correlated? To, yes, to a large degree. But what's interesting is you've died deep enough on the correlations there is a certain level that it's kind of in it's kind of exponential gains where yes if i can you know snatch 100 pounds you know that's good and 135 is way better and 165 is way better but at some point 185 200 pounds 
if I was to go from 200 pounds to something ridiculous, like 250 or 285, I'm not necessarily getting faster or getting better. Or my jump's not getting any higher. So there's a, there's a baseline of, yes, I have a strength now to get the job done, but now getting double the improvement on my snatch no longer correlates to double the improvement of my speed. And I, that's so important to justify, to understand why are we doing what we're doing when we're choosing these, these modalities or these exercise tools is that diminishing returns yeah really are we are really getting the bang for our buck we want you got the job done good let's stay there let's not let risk reward to evan's point why would i go so much heavier mm-hmm. with so little benefit uh, at that point we've, we've seen this in, in, the, in the literature is really, really well defined so you always have to ask yourself why are we doing what we're doing if living sport and living lifting is your thing yeah. rock and roll but if football is your thing then at some point olympic lifting has a, has a cap yeah. And there's some other considerations to make and other things you can do that can really improve your, your performance. If you're bored, look for another tool to use. Right. Just skill acquisition. Just like, I mean, it's all the same pattern at the end of the day. Yeah. Whatever's in your hand, it's same pattern. Yeah, you can't, you can't refute it. And so if you're bored and you're like, I just want to get 400 because, I mean, that's fine to have that number and that's your own personal choice and your opinion and, and whatnot, which is fully supported because it's you. But if if you're going to go out there and decide whether what's something like it's risk versus reward and whatnot, understand that you can do the exact same thing and give back to your body in a positive way with other modes. I think like one that. thing that we're fighting against too, though, is that these Olympic lifts have been made kind of sexy, right? Like they're all over social media. CrossFit has become huge because of this amazing culture they've created. They've gotten a lot of people to, to do strength training and exercise, you know, kind of intensely in ways that they have never done before. Mm-hmm. And so these, these things have been made kind of relatively cool and sexy. And so a lot of people, a lot of novices particularly have fallen into these, yeah. this path because of that. Yeah. yeah. And I think if you look at, I mean, if you were to talk to high level, uh, division one collegiate coaches, you know, certainly in the pro level, you're not seeing Olympic lifts as risk reward is no longer valuable. So you don't right. see that at all really in that level right. for the most part. It's, but in college, in collegiate sports, you do still see it quite a bit. It's a great way to build strength on young mm-hmm. people and develop some, um, some body fortitude. But the, uh, the, the, the piece that's, that's critical here is that if you ask a strength coach, they would never do a lift of Olympics nature for probably more than five reps. It'd be very, very rare to see a rep scheme yes. higher than five repetitions. Most likely you're going to see like maybe a two to three repetition scheme because it's power. Yeah. And by nature of power, we're looking for absolute effort, max force, mm-hmm. two, three times, shut the bar down and go rest for five minutes so that you can generate that again and then repeat that. We're looking for max power production. That's the whole point of the lift. Mm-hmm. How heavy of a lift body, something can I get from the ground over my head in the most efficient way possible? That's Olympic lifting. When, when you take that and you manipulate it to like, let's do it now. How many of those can you do in a minute? How many of those can you do in two minutes? It completely changes the game yeah. and the stresses on the body. And it kind of loses the point of, of though, to your point, it is sexy and there's lots of videos on it. Is that a good goal? You know, and is it a good goal? From our perspective, from a performance standpoint, we would consider performance to be improving your movement pattern, improving your sport, improving those types of things. What's the intention? What's yeah, the what, aim? Yeah, what we and and the only intention, the only one in that scenario is to do that. To do that. No skill. coach would ever say so that they could play football at a higher level, mm-hmm. so they could play rugby at a higher level, so they could be a better athlete for X, Y, Z. It's is, purely just so that they can beat that number. That is CrossFit. Yeah, right? that, so that is what CrossFit sport. is. Yeah. So that is then a sport. And then if you look at the highest level CrossFit athletes, they're not doing the wad every day. They're training in other ways for that because if they did that every single day, their body would get beat up. And that's what we see with people that do. And welcome, uh, you know, orthopedic surgeons, which they do quite well with the CrossFit <laughs> yeah. community. Yeah. And I, I think that you, 
you definitely be careful of like working out for time. Not to say it's bad, but you just, again, you just look at what's your goal? What, what's the objective? What are you trying to accomplish? I, I think with our brand, you know, we condition with the skill that is absolutely owned. You, we almost yes. love it with a, a lower scale lift, yes. but you know, that's why we condition with the sled. We don't condition with the most difficult lift yeah. in the world. I really, I like, I don't know. I've gone completely into the, the category of like, own the skill. I, I promise you it'll, It'll give back to your life so much more than just doing things just to do them. Like do things with a purpose. It, it gives some excitement, some 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 actual direction to your workouts, and then own it. And once you own it, then you can kind of get creative. You can get creative with your strength endurance. You can get get creative with your aerobic and anaerobic challenges. Your strength in general. I mean, you can own the skill, and the possibilities are endless. And when you do those things, those various avenues. When the skill is is mastered, then it it has positive effects on your body. You can only do an AMRAP of something you're moderately good at for so long before it starts taking away from you, 100%. So I like the skill acquisition by far and large, if you're in just in the fitness community or if you're in the, the profession of training someone to do something well, like that should be your singular focus. Thanks for watching Comcast. We'll see you in the next episode. This was Kimecast, and we are the Kime Human Performance Institute. Thank you very much for listening. We'd love to continue the conversation with you. Please hop on our social media. It's at KimeHPI and engage with us there. If you'd like us to feature a topic or answer any questions live on the show, post your comments there. You can also check us out on our website at KimePerformance.com, and there you can see links to content that we've posted throughout our podcast for more information.